Today's story is about a family-owned business that was passed down between mother and daughter for three generations. Grandmother, mother, daughter, learning from the one before, growing a family business for years, even when the world tried to deem it as wrong. Our queens today not only show us a story of strength, freedom, but also how broken our justice system is for those who are considered unworthy, and how even back then our justice system is flawed. I got someone to be my legs and make a dead man come on. I got someone to be my legs and make a dead man come on. Hello, my name is Summer, and this is Pain For It. Thank you for being here for episode 27. <laughs> Today's story has it all. Money, power, true crime, and a family of queens who took the cards they were dealt in life and made the most of it. They had a lot stacked against them. For one, they were a woman, so already you know how it is. They have the world against them. But their biggest sin, according to the world that they were born in, was they were African-American women. So we already know that the world has deemed them beneath it. And this is paying for it. So you know that we are talking about a woman, a woman, um, or in this case, women, who were willing to capitalize on the biggest seller of the world, sex baby. And of course, we talk about history here on Paying For It. So as the story starts in a small town, but politically big town, please keep in mind that these women really had the world truly stacked against them. But they still were able to find and forge their own way. We will get to all of that and more on today's episode, but before we get to that, please consider following, subscribing, liking, leaving a review for paying for it wherever you are choosing to listen. Also, I know I disappeared for a little bit. I am very sorry. It has been very hectic. The um, apartment we're staying in is a full-blown mess. It is just breaking down on us, and it's just been really, really frustrating to say the least. And so I just have been in a chaotic mind state and just in general, very frustrated with other things going on with this apartment. And on top of that, I lost the little piece that you screw your camera onto with your tripod. But you know what? Here we're back. I got a new tripod, a better tripod, and it's amazing. I love it so much already. Thank you for myself, I guess. Thank you to myself for getting it. Um, and 
you know, we're still having problems with our apartment, but whatever, we're going to forge forward. We've found a way um, to just try not to get flustered. Anyways, um, yeah, I also sat down to record this episode two weeks ago, and it was... I did not do it justice and I knew it. I knew it halfway through and I hated it. I was so frustrated with everything that I was like, ugh, I'm so mad. And yeah, so I just scrapped the episode and then I went back to writing it. And it actually took me a while to write um, longer because I wanted to give the story more lights, more... You'll see going forward in this episode that we only really know her, their lives, these um, grandma, mom, and daughter's lives through, sadly, mostly their arrest records. And it's hard to show the glamour of life when all your, like, old history wants to prove their life is slap you in the face with their arrest records. But I think I've done a decent job. Um, but also I was very honest in this story, you know, so I told it how it was and that we'll get into that anyways. So yeah, I started over with this. It took me two weeks to write for no reason. I, I mean, for a reason, I only could write when I was at home because I didn't, it's hard when you're at work flipping through book because I got most of the information through a book and um, it's hard to grab all that information while you're at work trying to, it's easier when you're researching and you're pulling up online articles and you're going back and forth and writing on your phone, whereas to like be opening a book at work that I already work like a job that I'm up in kind of going. I'm not sitting at a desk. So yeah, it was just a mess. Anyways, it's just been a mess, but I'm back and I'm hoping you're excited to have me back. I'm excited to be back. Hopefully we can get the power situation started out and get my AC to stay on for longer than 30 minutes. But you know, what can I say? It's been chaotic. Some fun things that have happened recently is that I learned that I'm I guess good at bowling or maybe just competitive enough to make myself be good at bowling. I went bowling with my bestie a couple weeks ago and we had a lot of fun and I was pretty good. <laughs> um, like I said, I got a new tripod and it's really nice and I took a, a tad bit of time setting it up. I already know that it's not going to be perfect and we'll keep making adjustments, but we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. Okay. And yeah, so that's pretty much where I've been. I hope you guys have been doing well. I hope you haven't missed me too much. And I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get back. I kind of thought of it as maybe a chaotic summer break, okay? It was my brain telling me, you need this right now. Too much is happening. You need just time to yourself. Not even time to yourself. You just need time to like... Uh, get things situated or in a way to get calmer, I guess, is more the uh, right thing to say. It's just a whole half of this apartment doesn't have power. It's been a disaster. I've had extension cords just to run my TV and internet. Also, then I had a, an extension cord to my washer and dryer. 
when I say I'm living in an apartment from hell, I mean it. I'm like, God, it's horrible, okay? It's horrible. Anyways, let's move on. I hope you all are doing well. I hope you guys are enjoying the rest of your summer. And yeah, let's get into it, shall we? When you think of a family business, what initially comes to mind? For me, it's Bob's Burgers. Why? Because I love it. And it's a show about a family running a family business. Often though, when you hear about family businesses, it's normally the firstborn boy who is normally thought to be the one who is supposed to take over, to be the one that takes it all, kind of. No matter the business or if they actually want to take it over, that's besides the point. It just usually is, like, oddly enough, thought us, like, my firstborn is to continue my legacy, which is so weirdly barbaric and just odd that I can't wrap my head around that anyways, but yeah, it's a little different now, but a lot of the time still family owned businesses you talk to, they want their kids there. They want their kids to take it over when they no longer can. Let's talk about the business that comes to mind. Restaurants like Bob's Burgers, or maybe you thought of a family owned car shop or even a convenience store. I'm sure Boradello was probably the last thing to be considered as a family business. But this is paying for it, baby. So you know we got a story. And a story it is of a family-owned and operated brothel that exchanged the hands of mother, grandmother, and daughter. And ended in the hands of the granddaughter who really cherished the business. They all kind of cherished it in their own ways. So with that, you know what time it is. Grab yourself a cocktail, a mocktail, a coffee, whatever you fancy. Today, I have, I'm boring again today, I'm sorry, just a random liquid IV because I literally have nothing else in my apartment right now. Ah, I should have said cheers, I didn't. I was really thirsty. Uh, I had my coffee today and I just could, yeah, I couldn't find anything else I wanted to drink in my fridge. Actually, I might have a little bit of a spicy margarita in there. I do work later though. <laughs> let's not, let's not. We're going to say we did and didn't. Uh, but yeah, we just got a liquid IV, delicious watermelon, my favorite flavor, and cheers, 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 cheers to you. Whatever you're drinking, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope it's delicious and relaxing if that's what you need. Cheers. And let me introduce you to Jane Anders, Cora Anders, and Bessie Jones Anders. Clearly, today's story is going to be a bit different, as we are going to be talking about a generation of women who ran a business, working hard to keep it up and running throughout the decades and the many changing political climates. Most of today's story will be focused on Bessie Jones, the great or the granddaughter of the original owner, Jane Anders. However, before we get to her, it's important that we start at the beginning 
with the grandma, Jane Anders. Almost all of the grandmother's story is sadly, you know it, a mystery to history. So it's important to note that it is hard to know for sure when it comes to Jane's story because the, it's history, baby. So I have to say, according to me, intensively to history, Jane made a living by selling sex. Historians can't say for sure because they don't have definite proof and that would come in a form of some kind of life trail that could prove it 100% sure. A lot of the times that is usually for women working in the sex trade a arrest record. A lot of the times tracing if a woman worked as a woman of the nights, that would come in the form of an arrest record. However, Jane's story takes place when the world looks a lot different. Jane was born in Maryland in 1836. Okay, 1836. I can't even wrap my head around what that would be like. She first appears in a small town of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, on the U.S. census in 1860s, listing herself and her children, Charles, who is the oldest at six years old, David, who is two, and the youngest and only girl, Cara, at four months. The world was gearing up for civil war, and Carlisle was a small town that was going to play a critical part in the battles to come. Also, being a stop for the underground tunnels, allowing enslaved people to escape to free states. So, politically, this is just like a weird town because... A lot is happening, and it's in Pennsylvania. It's, it's very small. Even to this day, it's a very small town. But in general, when, um, think, when Cora, I'm sorry, when Jane was living her life through this town, it was an interesting town because, uh, like, the Civil War, you know about Gettysburg, that happened not 30 minutes away or something like that. And so there was a lot of military people coming in. The world was gearing up for, the, like I said, the Civil War. But on top of that, Carlisle had a stop on the, um, in the underground tunnels, allowing people to escape to um, free states. So it was just a little town making history, okay? Um, so during the, war, during the war, Carlisle will go on to be attacked by the Army of Confederacy State of America under the General Fence Hu Lee. Probably said his name wrong. Sorry if I did. Not really. So if you step into Carlisle today, the town will, will walk you through this battle. At uh, the at the same time this battle was going on, the Gettysburg battle was taking place about 45 minutes away. What is known today as the Americans' bloodiest battle. Things were scary and unknown because the war was literally at the front door. 
So with soldiers facing bleak and unknown futures, of course, they're also looking for a little bit of freedom in that unknown, a little bit of uh, vice, I guess you can say. So this war, of course, brought a lot of scared, lonely boys and men looking to find some form of comfort. And of course, that comfort came in the form of a lady selling her goods by the hour. So history can't tell us for sure if Jane was one of those women, but if we pull our knowledge from what we know about the time period, it wouldn't be a far-fetched to think that Jane moved to a town to find freedom in the cash-rich, lonely soldiers. Public women during the Civil War era was practically legalized. The U.S. really flirted with legalizing prostitution around this time, and that's interestingly fascinating. So to think about that, just know that it wasn't their main uh, cause of concern at this time. And so as the army saw it as a quote-unquote necessary evil, a lot of the states adopted the same outlook to public women in which they had to pay a fine that pretty much acted as a license. You would have to get a regular checkup and... Um, that I so I can't say 100% that was what Jane did. However, it's highly unlikely that that's the case. We know that Jane was a single African American woman mother who moved to Carlisle around the time the soldiers were piling in as well. History tells us a lot about widows or single and abandoned mothers who would turn to sex work in this time period for better pay than other jobs offered women. I shouldn't have to also point out that this was during the Civil War, so the options for single women of color were very, very, very slim. And the ones that were available were very bleak, to say the least. Anyway, anyways, that was a long way around saying that none of Jane's lives trail tells us for certain she was a public woman public woman because at this time during the civil war um, america flirted with the idea of legalizing prostitution so we don't have a good record of what jane was really up to in this time which i note i do think about how different and safer our world could look had we done something like legalizing prostitution during the civil war like how many murders could have been prevented if we just decriminalized sex work. With the the Gilgo Beach Rex stupid face getting arrested, um, it makes me think, you know, about how different our world could look if we made it a safer place for women and not just um, quote unquote the proper women, but the women who choose to make their living in escorting or sex work, stripping, whatever. A lot of these women did not get the um, coverage or even the police's attention because they were known public women of this 
of the time, you know? And it's just really, really fucking sad. But just to think of how different our world could look had we legalized it or even decriminalized it. How different our world could look even now if we got our asses up and did something like that. I don't know why I said got our asses up, but you know. Anyways, I just have a feeling that it would be a lot, lot safer for a lot more people if we just did the right thing. Because instead of forcing our ladies of the night to work alone and without any real protection from law because they risk being the ones and only person to be arrested when coming forward about anything... So it's just a bummer. We are a mess. And we, it's really sad to think about all the women who chose to make money in a way that people don't, we have this stigmatized, it's really a bummer that women get this stigma against them because they choose to make a career that people don't like. Um, and instead of protecting them and not really giving a fuck what they're doing, we are instead shaming them and allowing them to get hurt. And it's awful. Anyways, I want on attention, but that's how I feel. Decriminalized sex work. Okay. Okay. Anyways, because they had a more open idea when it comes to sex work, no real record exists of Jane and her work because she didn't get arrested while allegedly applying her trade. Uh, So we can't for sure say, but there are a lot of like hints leading us up to believe that this is very likely what Jane did. Anyways, Jane most likely raised her daughter Cora with the idea that she would take over and go into the business of selling sex as well. And We can be confused by that. We can judge if we want. But these women lived in a very different world than we would have or I would have lived back in that day. Like, I can't speak for you. But as a white woman uh, who, you know, already is born with a little bit more of an advantage because of the color of my skin um, in a time period that was really, really not awesome, it's... um, okay to assume that Cora or Jane taught Cora that this was a way to a certain kind of freedom for any woman in this life. What exactly Cora went into the trade? When exactly Cora went into the trade is a mystery to history as well. However, I do hope that it was an age appropriate time What an age-appropriate time back then was to what it would be now is probably completely different. However, it is the case that we know for sure that Cora was a woman who sold sex. At some point, Jane gets a house, Jane or Cora. The record's a little bit confusing, but at some point... They do get a house located at 20 East Locust Street, which was located about four blocks from the original courthouse. So we are talking about prime location to downtown and, of course, the college. 
So we can't talk about Carlisle without mentioning the fact that this little town is also the home of the Dickinson's College, which was founded in 1773. Getting its start as Carlisle's grammar school, Dickinson then was chartered on September 9th, 1783, making it the first college to be founded after the formation of the United States. This college would bring in a lot of young white men because, you know, at this time, women weren't really allowed to go to school. And, well, I doubt I have to explain why it was white men mostly in the school. But just in case you're unsure, it's because the world is ridiculously racist place. And back then, it was just way fucking worse so with Carlisle being a town that had a lot of military men in and around it also had a lot of college kids that brought wealth so with Carlisle being a town that had a lot of military men in and around it it also had a college that brought in wealthy men into the town as well. So, you know, the Andersons definitely had opportunity to make a lot of money. So now let me bring you back to 20 East Locust Street, to the Andersons' home and Boradello, a cute little three-bedroom house located in prime real estate for the ladies of the night. Entering into the home, you enter into the kitchen, where you can turn to the parlor room, which will then lead you upstairs. It's upstairs, you'll find two bedrooms. From there, you can access and climb up to the attic. Eventually, Jane will go on and retire from turning tricks and hand the business over to her daughter, who will continue to run, for, run it for a while also continuing to turn tricks and running the day-to-day -day operation. As the world changes and moves towards a more conservative outlook, prostitution and running a brothel will not go without its struggles. We see that in Cora's life trail. Although even for Curl, though, the world was different, it still worked in a fees and fines system when it came to selling sex. We know this because in April um, 12, 1886, Cora will be arrested and pleads guilty to running a disorderly house. She is charged with a $100 fine plus a dollar court fee. She pays it and heads back to the house for business as usual. Cora would be left alone for a while. However, it seems that April was the time for crackdowns because she will be arrested again April 23rd, 1889. She will again pay her $101 fine and be back at East Locust Street running the business, you guessed it, as usual. Now, whether Jane helped her daughter start the bordello or it was uh, Cora's idea to bring in more ladies from the circuit isn't fully clear. However, we do know that by this point, Cora is turning tricks and is also a madam of the house. So she is doing both. 
She and maybe her mother implemented a system for the Borodello that is known around town as Cora's Place, where she would have two or three girls come into town from the bigger surrounding cities like Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and even Baltimore. They would come and stay in the house where they would work for Cora for a few weeks, then go back to the circuit. And the circuit is where ladies would travel um, through what was known as the circuit to different houses and bordellos um, while um, touring as a lady of the nights. While staying in the house, the women were expected to help with chores around the house. They were also provided warm meals. They would be provided warm meals twice a day, breakfast and dinner. They also had sandwich fixings in the fridge to eat for lunch on downtimes during opening hours. The madam of the house took all the money that was collected during business hours she would then collect 40% of the earnings and pay out the girls at the end of their shift. This will um, continue even for Bessie. Bessie takes 40% of all earnings and pays the girls out at the end of the night. Now, the one odd thing that the Andersons did that is unlike a lot of the other madams we have talked about here on Paying For It is that the ladies visiting and working in the house weren't able to sleep in the rooms they did their business in. They instead had to stay in the attic of the house. I'm really not sure exactly why this was something that the madams made the women do. We just know that it is something that does happen and will continue to happen with Bessie, the daughter of Cora, who takes over the house later down the line. And at first I was thinking maybe it was because Cora also had five children. So maybe her f- children stayed in the um, house. I am not sure. I'm very confused on why they made the girls stay in the attic. They did. And the attic wasn't like fully weatherproof. So it was. It would get hot and cold depending on the season. And um Bessie and Cora would do what they can to make it comfortable and stuff like that. It's just a weird thing, I think. It's just a weird, there's perfectly good bedrooms. And if they're sitting empty, I'd be like, why can't I sleep in that bed? Like, you know, that's just weird to me. (laughs) Cora will be listed in the U.S. 1900 census as a single woman living in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Ward 1, Mulberry Avenue. So I guess she had a separate place for her and her children. So um, when I found that out, I realized that it wasn't because they had children in the house. So yeah, it became even weirder to me on why they kept, when they made the girls sleep in the attic. It was just a house rule. With her five children named Albert, Andrew, who went by Al, age 15, Willie at age 11, Bessie Jane, the oldest daughter at age 11 or 15. Um, As Bessie's birth year is a little unclear. However, it was sometime between 1885 or 1889. And then there was Marion, age five, and Vermont, age four. So it seems like 
So it seems like Cora lived in a different house with her children, I think. However, when Bessie takes over the house, she will live in it permanently. That as her house. Cora will be left alone by the police for quite a while. That will, of course, come to an end in May. On May 15th, 1902, when Cora's house will be raided and she will be found guilty again for running a Brody house. Most likely, this raid will have resulted in her pleading guilty and paying a fee. Eventually, Cora will bring her daughters into the folds as well. Vermont, her youngest daughter, will only work in the family business for a bit, but Bessie, her eldest daughter, will go on to follow in her mother and grandmother's footsteps and eventually become the proud owner of 20 East Locust Street. Before we can get to that, though, we should talk about Bessie's time as a public woman. We again can, if you want, judge the women and mothers here for allowing and passing the torch of that this to them. However, why would you? We already discussed that as a black woman living in history, they had no options. For why be mad at mothers for teaching their daughters how to survive in this world that was not made for them? I kind of find it abnormal. Abnormal. Ab- I understand the reason why some people would be thrown off by that or a little on edge on that. But I also understand where they may have been coming from. This allowed them to live a very different and a more securely freedomed life than most of the people around them and especially for people of color. So this was something I think we can, of course, judge the mothers for doing this, but we also shouldn't because we, one, didn't live that time period and don't have any real experience or understanding on what it was like to live then and there and dealing with the world that it was at that point. So I don't know. I just think it was a smart move sometimes. Bessie started working for her mother, And again, a hopefully appropriate age. What we know about Bessie and her early age isn't a lot. However, we do know that she met her future husband while working in her mother's house. William Jones was a soldier who was stationed at Carlisle's barracks. William and some of his other comrades found themselves at 20 East Locust Street, where he would go on and meet Bessie and a fling begins. Now, it is very important to note that this is actually very uncommon for working in a bordello to start a relationship with any of their clients. Honestly, you never want to blur the lines with your relationship if it is transactional. However, it seems in this case, Bessie didn't care about those lines. It also should be stated that as a man or a client, as someone who may be or may not sell sex, don't ever expect this to be the outcome. You may think you love them, but nine and a half times out of 10, maybe even 10 out of 10 times, they don't think the same. It's business, baby. 
At some point, Bessie and a couple of the soldiers will be within the house when a raid will take place on Cora's place. Cora, Bessie, and the other girls working in the house will go on to be arrested. The men, paying for the services, will of course be let go and no charges filed against them. In 1917, Bessie and William will go on to get married. Bessie will go on and continue to work for her mother even after marriage. She will cut back her hours a bit for a little while during the beginning of their marriage and and or only work while he was on leave. On November 5th, 1917, another raid will take place on Cora's place. This raid will be done by D.A. George Lloyd and state troopers. When busting down the door, they are going to bring a screeching halt to the party being held within the house. Cora's place was pretty busy that night as she had a house full of Gettysburg soldiers. The beer bottles were flowing and the whiskey was hitting right. When busting down the door... George will arrest Cora, Bessie, uh, Marion, Bessie's little sister, and Gay Newman, another woman working within the house that night. They will be arrested and jailed that night for prostitution and the illegal sale of liquor and beer. The soldiers will be let go and be back at base the next day with no no charges filed against them. Another raid will take place on November 2nd at 11 p.m. This raid will be a bit of a BS arrest and fine because that night of question, Cora and her house were just enjoying their dinner of chicken and waffles. However, the house was full and uh, had two young gentlemen, four soldiers from Gettysburg, and of course, liquor. Just like the other raids, Cora and the women will get arrested. The men will be released. No charges filed. At this point, Bessie's husband, William Jones, has been stationed outside of Carlisle. And Bessie is working again pretty much full time with the brothel and working with her mother on learning the ropes. Because at this point in life, Cora is nearing retirement and is ready to kind of take a step back from the business. It should be noted that Bessie and William will never reunite. And the reason why is a little mystery to history. It seems as if he may have been stationed in another base. And from there, a separation happened or maybe he died It's very unclear exactly what happened and no other real life trail is found um, for William, which isn't uncommon for this time period. So it's a little weird, but he either died or they just separated. Bessie will continue to work for her mother, saving up her money to buy out her mother one day. Once she finally does have the money saved up to purchase the business from her mother, she won't actually take over the business for a while. However, she does tell her mother, once she fully, once she fully is madam, she will be making some changes. She won't take over until 1922, so those changes won't come until later. 
Once the business is purchased by Bessie, though, her mother will deed the house to the youngest daughter, Vermont. When Bessie asks her mother why, if she is purchasing the business, would her mother deed it to Vermont? Cora will tell her this will add a layer of protection to the business that they wouldn't be able to seize the property if it was under the sister's name. Vermont will keep the deed to the house up until her early death, um, where Bessie will then go on and buy the house for $800. This brings us to December 5th, 1922, when the police will raid Cora's house again. This time when she pleads guilty, she will be fined 50 and sentenced to a year in prison. It is then that Cora's place will be, will be rebranded to Bessie's place. Bessie will become the madam of the house and start initiating some of those rule changes. She had two big changes she really wanted to initiate as madam of the house. And the first change would be that with the promotion, she no longer would be turning tricks herself. When asked by her mother, why not? Because Cora, when taking over the business, had continued to sell sex while also being the madam of the house. However, she could be more selective if she wanted to be. Um, but Madam Bessie, though, she felt with the promotion, she would be working hard on the day to day and that she didn't want to do it anymore. So in December, Bessie was able to officially retire herself from selling sex. The second biggest change she made while taking over the new business was no more college students shocking her mother, who was like, why the heck would you do that? They have money daddy's money at that bessie response was that though they may have money they brought too much attention to the house allowing the college boys in the house would generate more attention from the police than they initially than they really wanted and it was probably more trouble than it was worth having all those boys those little boys and like they're not little they're like in college but like it was probably just annoying to have those boys in the house something i haven't touched on yet is that no matter what all of the um bessie and her cora and maybe even jane are only allowed white men as clients because they understood that if they didn't tread carefully it could be more damaged than necessary. So they really had to only allow white men into the house because if they didn't, um, police would be knocking constantly. It would be a very different um, business. And also, it would probably potentially scare away the men coming through the door which is so stupid and uneducated and all that all that jazz, okay? But, like, they knew if they were going to be successful, they could only offer their services to the white men. Anyways, the same day her mother begins her one-year sentence, Bessie will take over that morning, waking up and starting breakfast, 
waiting for the drivers to drop the girls, and also waiting for the liquor to be delivered. Now, at this point of Bessie taking over, we are in a full-blown prohibition era, and getting you liquor and beer was a lot harder than just buying it. So that day when she got her very first delivery, she noticed the man had brought her near beer, which near beer is basically your malt beverage that contains little to no alcohol, not going over 0.5%. Bessie made sure to let that delivery driver know that she was in charge now and near beer was not going to cut it any longer for her. She wanted the men who came through her door to be able to get all of their vices. With real actual liquor available, it will allow the vibes to flow better in the house. She, of course, did not want the main seller of her house to be liquor, but she also knew that drinking and sex just went together. So she wanted to make sure that Bessie's place was known that you can get all your needs and vice met there at Bessie's house. So now we are into Bessie running her house and she is in her flow of being a business owner. When her mom gets out of jail, she will continue to help her daughter around the house, cooking and cleaning. But Bessie is now in full, full blown owner, CEO kind of vibing, all right? Bessie seems to be able to stay out of the cops radar for quite some time after taking over the house. It's not until September 18th, 1938-9 when her house gets raided and she will be arrested along with the girls who are working in the house that night. She will go on and pay her fine, pay her girls fines, and then they will go on because it would be, you guessed it, business as usual. Sadly, on March 4th, 1945, Bessie's mother, Cora, will pass away, leaving Bessie to run the house alone. Bessie will live a pretty normal life throughout running the family business. She was a very kind-hearted and did her best to be a good person in her community. She shows us that by always welcoming her neighbors in for meals, When the world would go through hard times, she will do her best to hand out food and other necessities to those in the community that were struggling more than her. In fact, I would say that Bessie's downfall was her kindness, but we aren't quite there yet. She also did all of the shopping for the girls, walking into town to pick up new lingerie, food from the farmer's market, and any other knickknacks they may need. You will see that Bessie will not spoil herself too much. She does not allow herself to live flaunty with her money. She would mostly just sit on her money. The only thing she had done for herself that was glamorous when giving herself that promotion was getting herself a really nice and fancy fur coat. She justified this purchase to herself because she did a lot of walking in town and it got cold in the winter. She would need a coat that lasted and kept her warm and she will go on to actually keep that coat her entire life. 
She went to churches on Sunday mornings and she tried her hardest to be kind, friendly to everyone she encountered. One day, Bessie will wake up to get started on her flow as a owner. That night, she had planned to serve some soup for dinner, so she got the soup stock boiling. It's then that she will hear a funny noise. Once stopping to listen to what it may be she's hearing, luckily for her, she figures it out at the very right moment that someone is trying to break into her house through the screen window. She immediately calls the police. Knowing though that these people are going to get in before the police can actually respond, and she was right. So as the, break, uh, the intruders break in and make their way to the kitchen, she is able to defend herself by throwing the boiling pot of soup at them. And by doing this, she's able to subdue both of them and wait for the cops to respond. Once the cops arrive, they are going to arrest the men. It's in, court, it's in the court trial that we can see our first real glimpse of how the justice system fails. During the trial, they have the evidence, the testimonies from not only Bessie, but also the cops. Though it seems as a pretty open and shut case if things were to work the way they should, however, it's not the case because when the judge reads the jury's verdict, all were pretty much stunned when it came back to a hung jury, leading the men to be acquitted and released on time served. This didn't happen because they didn't have enough evidence to comfortably find them guilty. No, it happened at a it happened because they had a biased jury who couldn't put their feelings or his feelings you know, because they're probably all men on the jury. Some of those men couldn't put their feelings aside for Bessie and what Bessie did for a living to look at a case the way they should, which was impartial. Honestly, that ain't it. It sucks that that happened to Bessie and it shows a flaw in our system. Yes, this is historical justice system, but I promise it was broken then and it's only shattering now. Bessie will continue on with her daily life, running a business and keeping the flow of her day-to-day, -day, even though she found the verdict to be very unfair and kind of horrible. Her sister was in court with her that day, and they kind of both leave defeated in a, in a way because they know that the world's kind of stacked against them. In 1954, she will get a call from her lawyer letting her know that all of her assets in the bank have been frozen and she is now being investigated for tax fraud. During the trial, the judge is quite hard on Bessie. One, because he sees what she does for a living as lazy, dishonest, and criminal her entire life. Going on to say, this woman never did an honest day's work in her life. She has appeared before this court numerous times, but continues to operate her house at ill repute. And, counselor, I do not accept ignorance of the law as an excuse for avoiding paying income taxes despite the income tax evasion charge last year. 
anyone accumulates 200,000, which is equivalent to over a million today, is no financial nymph. When given the chance to talk, Bessie will stand and make a statement that will stun the courtroom, including the judge. You don't know how I've lived my life. I can, turn, I can turn around and point out at least six or seven clients in this courtroom right now. And she wasn't talking about other people facing the court. She was talking about lawmen. Bessie's clientele was political men and soldiers. and But by the time she was here, she was well known for being discreet, being someone who you know, offers what needs to be offered. And so she had very um, prestigious men coming into her door, like lawyers and people of the courts and politicians and judges. So this really shocked not only the courts, the judge and everyone inside. She was speaking on lawful men within the courtroom, and I'm sure the six or seven of them in that courtroom started sweating bullets in the moment, thinking she would do just that. The judge will clear his throat, get the attention back on himself, and sentencing Bessie to a year in jail and five years probation within the, with the possibility of parole, plus a $3,000 plus $3,000 in fines for violating her parole the year prior. Before she turns herself in for her jail sentence, she did what she needed to to around her house. She's going to close it up. She's going to close up her business for the year because she doesn't really have anyone else who knows how to run it, or she doesn't really have anyone especially that she can trust to run it. So she's closing it up. She had to make sure that her house would be okay standing alone for a year. After turning herself in and serving her year in prison, she's back to her missed home and her baby, the business. The only thing the year-long sentence taught Bessie was not to put her money into the bank. Since getting out of jail, she started the system where she would store her money in satin pillowcases, books, and just random places around her house. Honestly, it's odd because we don't see many cases of Bessie going on and spending any of her money she was making <laughs> at all. Other than that fur coat I talked to you about. She puts most of the money that she does spend back into the business and back into her town. Um, however, she really never spends a lot of money and basically attempts to hoard the money. I'm not sure the reason behind this, but I honestly think it's because she wasn't allowed to be flaunty. The moment she started strutting her stuff being flashy for herself would be the moment the town and the law would turn their raft their yeah their anger fully towards her instead of the side eye that she'd been giving given most of her career business as usual will continue with bessie storing bundles of cash throughout her house when bessie's doors were open she only allowed regulars into the house if they weren't regulars they had to come with a reference and referral from a trusted regular
The girls would continue to rotate within the house on the circuit, working in the rooms and living in the attic. One of Bessie's big rules for the girls was that they were not actually allowed to leave the house without her while they were working for her. Which I was like, damn, that's a rule if you ask me. However, again, different times. But not only that, it could have been a safety precaution or possibly the fact that she made 40% of the woman's earning and she did not want the girls to go out and turn tricks in the town to pocket extra cash. Maybe meet ups with some regulars and maybe not tell Bessie about it. That would definitely cause some issues to her business i do believe that she may have had this rule for a mixture of both because one this was a small town and would word would spread fast if you were a girl within her house and some people were kind um to some people weren't are just not kind and on top of that she didn't want to lose her money so i do believe that this rule was a mixture of safety and protection on her own money so in january 1964 when bessie was serving another term in prison when her house will be robbed and then set on fire to try and cover up the crime. The police and the firemen are going to find Marina, Bessie's baby sister, in the basement walking in circles, acting very strange. The police couldn't get her out of the house, and about that same time, Bessie's lawyer shows up hearing about the fire and it uh, and he also ended up at the house because he's watching over her assets while she's in jail he will go on to help the sister out of the house where the police immediately tries to arrest and take her into custody to interrogate her um they will ask the the police will immediately ask if they cause if she's the one to cause this her response will be no bessie's my sister why would i do that who would do this to her she's kind to everyone still the police have a hunch and felt that this was an inside job and they felt the fire was just a cover-up for the real crime of robbery Searching the area, they find a man named Frank Stackfield, an acquaintance of business, uh, an acquaintance of Bessie, who knew that she no longer kept her money in the banks, but instead had it hiding it around the house. He probably knew that because we'll later learn that he has association with the family. Knowing this and that she was in jail, they thought this would be a opportune time to help themselves to her money without much pressure frank will lead the cops to the rest of the money in that that they know of that's left in bessie's house where the cops of course will compensate said money for the claims of back taxes and then frank will go ahead and quickly write out on everyone who also was involved he will lead them back to marine's house where they will search frank and finding five thousand and five thousand six hundred in cash on him also a man named ralph taylor Kahn, bs and al gibson who's the maid of the house who will also have five hundred and twenty dollars on her so it's very horrible to think that her sister and the men and her maid were probably asked to maybe keep an eye out on the house and the money and kind of took advantage of the fact that the Bessie was in jail and robbed her. 
I hope that she never spoke to any of them again because it's one thing to rob someone, but it's another to then try and just burn their house down. They're in jail. They can't even defend it. Luckily, they will go on to be found guilty and all serve time for this crime. Bessie will get out of jail missing 43600 that the police seized and also with the knowledge that she truly cannot trust any of her siblings. Other than her brother, who throughout his life always helped take care of her and the things around the house up until his death. Though Bessie was kind, caring, and a hardworking woman, the world wouldn't see her that way, allowing the injustice, the injustice to continue to stack against her. However, the biggest injustice of all will come to her after death. Late on September 30th, leading into the early mornings, October 1st, 1971, will start the events that will lead to the murder and quote-unquote unsolved case of Bessie Jones, bringing an end to a three-generation business that was owned and ran by black women. Late on September 30th, after Bessie had cleaned up after of dinner and was climbing up to her room, she's going to get a knock on the front door. And the, the door is going to be um, one of her drivers. The driver will let her know that he had a pregnant and drunk Georgia Schneider. Georgia was a woman who was familiar to Bessie because she had worked within Bessie's house quite a few times as she worked on the circuit. After asking the driver if he could possibly take her somewhere else, like the hotel um, down the street or somewhere else, and getting the no in response, she eventually lets her kind heart win and tells the driver to put her upstairs to let her sleep it off, going back to getting ready for bed. It is not a few minutes later that she gets attacked in her room with just her slip on. Now, what exactly happens in that room is only known to those people who were involved that night. However, we do know that it was a frantic murder and robbery took place in Bessie's room that night. It's not a few minutes later that she gets attacked. And we also know the events and movements of those who may have been involved. Minutes after the murder, Sandy, who is riding in the back of John Bubb's cab, will see Georgia running down the alley from Bessie's house. Slowing to talk to the frantic Georgia, Georgia will yell out to Sandy, What are you doing here? Where were you? Sandy will confusingly respond, The Starlight Motel. What's the matter? Get in. You're shaking like a leaf. Georgia will shout out to Sandy, um, we need to call the police, no an ambulance, I can't get in, the place is locked up. John, the cab driver, will knock and then try the front, finding it locked, he then will jog around the back door, also finding it locked. Climbing back into the cab, stating he wasn't able to get anyone in the house roused. After both girls acknowledge that they do not have keys, Sandy will ask to be taken back to the motel. Then Georgia will ask the cab driver to take her to Pittsburgh. 
John will let her know that his shift is actually ending and he's local. He isn't able to take her that far. He drops Sandy off at the motel, offering to take Georgia to Harrisburg, where she could possibly get a cab to Pittsburgh from there. He let her know, though, that the second ride would cost her a lot. It would be 100 plus 10 for the turnpike fee, which was like their toll road. She accepts and he calls it in for her. On October 3rd, trooper Michael Brennan will be cruising Carlisle when he will get the call telling him to head to the Jersey Turnpike to look for a taxi heading towards Pittsburgh. Shortly after that call, he will go on to pull over a cab, the driver Art Itnoy, the passenger being a 30-year-old Georgia, the woman matching the bolo that Michael had answered just a few minutes earlier. Immediately, he will place the woman under arrest and search her, where he will find money stuffed in her pants, purse, and valsi. Both Georgia and the cabbie will be arrested and brought into jail. It seems that the cops had been called to Bessie's house and stumbled into the murder scene. The first cop to find Bessie will take pictures upon entering the room. It's after the pictures are taken that he checks for a pulse and unties Bessie Jones. The other officer will find the murder weapon and gloves in the backyard of 20 East Locust Street, near the alleyway that Georgia was seen running out of. Georgia will be booked and fingerprinted for the murder. $5,000 will be confiscated from her and it will be discovered that she was five months pregnant. The cab driver will be interrogated and then later released. At some point while Georgia was being held in prison for the murder and robbery of Bessie Jones, she will attempt and semi-succeed in breaking out of prison. She will get outside of the jail, like literally right outside the building, where she will be then discovered and arrested again. Tuesday, October 24th, 1972, the preliminary trial will take place. The DA will have seven witnesses, including the chief of police, the coroner and the pathologist. The pathologist will testify that the cause of death will be blood loss from the stab wound of the preliminary artery. The artery that was cut is one of the prim primary vessels coming out of the heart. It is about an inch or an inch and a half right above the heart. It is pretty much considered part of the heart. He stated that she had been bound and gagged after death. However, he couldn't be fully certain of that fact. After the remaining witnesses testify and get cross-examined, the judge will rule that they have enough evidence to go to trial. On February 11th, 1973, the trial convenes. Although during the scene, it was processed for fingerprints and they find three partials, none of those prints were good enough to use to actually identify or compare to Georgia's. The prosecutor's star witness was in the form of Cassandra Jackson, a.k.a. Sally, a.k.a. Sandy. She would testify against Georgia, stating that she had killed Bessie. She had also been the 
she had also seen the defendant with a knife before the before the murder on uh, Georgia's bedside table that night before leaving for the Starlight Motel. The defense would have only one witness, being Georgia herself, which is always a risky move in a mur murder trial. She would go on to tell a different story of how it all went down. Not her first story, but the story that counted. Not her first story, but of course the story that counted. The story that she had been coached on from her lawyers to cause doubt in the jury. She will state that night she arrived at Bessie's, Sandy would warn her to stay in her room, that men were coming to rob Bessie, that she would, and that she cowered in her, the room for a while, listening until the loud noises stopped in the room below. After that, she will venture to check and find Bessie dead. She will attempt to call the police only to find that the line is also dead. She will state the money was she she will state that the money found on her stuffed into her pants and all that was that what she made while working. Oddly, this would be a completely different story that was told to the arresting officer that night she was taken in, where she told two different stories. One, where she states Bessie was very cruel to her as a madam, and she only intended to rob her. However, however, Bessie pulled a gun, so she, of course, had to defend herself. When no gun was found at the scene of the crime, however, or anywhere in the house, her story had to change. Again, saying actually someone else killed her another man she didn't know who she just stole the money afterward although it seems that all the evidence was kind of stacked against miss georgia it was all what it, we can call circumstantial so three hours after both sides arrested their cases the jury came back with a verdict not guilty on the murder and robbery charges which is horrific in my opinion because it's no doubt she got robbed and it's no doubt Georgia did take money but uh, anyways she would though be found guilty on the prison break and she would be sentenced to no less than a year no more than four years and that's what I mean by the justice system constantly failing Bessie especially in death, because who else would have done it? I mean, sure, they said that Sandy had hired the people, but it doesn't seem like that because the cab driver, like who, where were they? Why didn't the cab driver see anyone fleeing the scene? Why was only, why was it only Sandy who was saw fleeing the scene also? Not Sandy, I'm sorry. Why was it Georgia really the one fleeing the scene? And, and also, why is your story changing so much? Like, of course, that evidence isn't really brought into uh, the court. But, like, we all know. So what happened? Why you lie so much? If it was just a simple situation as if you, you earned that money working, it's because it's not the truth. 
That's how I feel about it. Allegedly, don't come for me. One year later, Georgia will be furloughed for from prison for about four days. However, after the four days, she will fail to turn herself back in. Six months later, she will uh, she will turn up at the Pittsburgh ER where she had been severely beaten by a John, which is honestly her like horrible, horrible, horrible. And I don't like to hear it, but she truly did murder someone. Karma's very much a bitch. Um, she will immediately be put back under arrest um, and sentenced to jail again for not coming back. <laughs> After being released from prison, she is spotted at an airport on her way to Florida, where she will stay until her death in October 2012, leaving Madam Bessie Jones' murder unsolved to this day, an open case that still puzzles the town today because of the many quote-unquote dangling threats did georgia kill and rob bessie on her own like the frantic scene kind of shows or was sandy somehow also involved like the defense team tried to say or was georgia telling the truth that she had only robbed bessie there had been a third player in the murder robbery but does that make sense what makes sense the most a pregnant lost and what seems to be scared and um desperate woman knowing an older defenseless lady was at home with money and she just shows up apparently drunk and is able to fully put herself back together after everyone left the house it's a little suspicious if you ask me in my opinion it seems that all signs and threads to me lead to georgia allegedly don't come for me i believe she may have definitely been responsible she was desperate like i said five months pregnant not in a good place and having no money or a place to turn to and eventually as a pregnant woman even if you you have to you have to stop working for a little bit that's just how it is if that's your career that's why a lot of working girls um in the sex industry make sure they are on birth control and making sure they aren't getting pregnant shit happens though and so clearly shit happened with her and she was desperate she knew of the madam that was older lived on her own and was vulnerable i find it odd that they pulled her over with five thousand dollars stuffed all over the place if it was her money why was she trying to hide it why was she in such a hurry to get out of town and it seems that she had just arrived that night had she stumbled upon a murder why did she flee however i really stand with this fact if you're innocent why does your story change multiple times it doesn't add up, my friends. That, my friends, 
was the story of the good, the bad, the ugly, but also the glamour, the power, and the freedom of Bessie Jones. Bessie really did what she could for her community, and though I don't feel as though she treated herself kindly, she did things oddly that I can say I that I can't say I would have done as a madam of the house. However, it was a different time and she had a different experience than I did and that I would back then. But most importantly, she lived differently than the white madams of her time. Her life wasn't outwardly glamorous like many of those who came before and after her. I think a lot of that has to do with the color of her skin, but I also think a part of that has to do with the town she lived in. Her glamour, though, would come in different forms than the white madams who loved to spoil themselves. Her glamour was that she had a house of her own, the money to have the freedom of life outside of poverty or being <coughs> or being ruled by a man. She had rainy day funds and was able to live peacefully her own her own boss you know she made the rules no one else did this was her house her life and though she didn't spend all of her money on herself by spoiling herself with new cars and stuff like that I think had she done that the town wouldn't have taken kindly to it sadly uh, I believe that Bessie's case will remain an unsolved. She may not have been able to flaunt her wealth, but maybe she didn't want to. Maybe she wanted to just live a quiet life in a small town, running the business like her grandmother and mother before her. Sadly, I believe that Bessie's case will remain an unsolved murder as those who were involved and potentially responsible are gone and resources will be put towards more recent issues. Also, double jeopardy, baby, even if she was alive and well and we had the evidence to try her again, we couldn't. However, I still feel that the I still feel those I still feel those that within the town and who knew the case felt that the they had, I, however, I still feel like, I still feel like they had the correct culprit. They just didn't have enough evidence to fully charge her. However, we should remember Bessie for not her murder or even her arrest records that came before her death. Instead, for the fact that she provided a small town something it clearly, clearly wanted. Well, at least the white men of the town wanted. On top of that, she ran a business with the best intentions, donating to charity, feeding her community, and giving women in this space a safe place to lay their head at night. Who seemed to enjoy her job and being alone in her own person, even though it came with some negative, even though her job came with negative stuff as well. Who seemed to enjoy her job, even though it came with some negatives, like 
having to spend time behind bars, or sometimes being looked down upon within her town. In all accounts, it seems Bessie was good to her girls, better than what they could get walking the streets or even working for a pimp, getting them checkups, feeding them, and giving them a clean and warm place to sleep. She sadly, though, did live her life of heart she sadly though did live a bit of a life of hardship not really because of her business and choice of career but more the fact that she was failed by those she trusted and those who were put in place to protect her and in the end her kind heart may have been her downfall and with that that's all I have for you this week If you haven't already, I suggest you liking, following, leaving a review, wherever you're listening. Um, And thank you for being here. If you are really vibing with me and my spicy history, check out my Patreon, which is linked down below, or patreon.com slash paying for it. You can get access to the video versions and the episodes are released early. With that, I hope you have an amazing rest of your week. I'll be back with another story of Historical Queen next week, I promise. Until then, goodbye. I got someone to feed my leg and make a dead man come on. I got someone between my legs and make a dead man come out. I'm gonna turn back my